Yeah, the number one thing that I think all of us in military medicine need to keep in mind is if you put the patient first, you'll seldom go wrong. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. War Docs partnered with the Defense Strategies Institute and had the opportunity to interview several key and influential leaders at the 2023 Operational Medicine Symposium. We discussed the current operational environment and what military medicine is currently doing to improve warfighter health, strength, and survivability, and what needs to happen to prepare for the future. In this episode, you'll learn about the latest innovations and opportunities to advance the practice of medicine in expeditionary environments. Welcome to Op-Ed TV in collaboration with War Docs Podcast. I'm Colonel Retired Doug Soderdahl, an Army urologist, and I want to shoot it over to my guest here. Hello, Paul Friedrichs. I'm the Joint Staff Surgeon, and it is a pleasure to be here with my friend and colleague for many years. Doug and I have known each other for a long time, and really excited to be here at the OpNet Summit. You're the Joint Staff Surgeon. Why is this meeting important? What do you expect to get out of this? Yes, I think one of the most important things about this particular meeting is the strong presence, not only of our medical colleagues from across the force, many of whom are stationed here in San Antonio, but it's the industry participation because we can do everything right in uniform and we're not, but if we did everything perfectly, we still could not succeed unless we've got great partners in industry who are helping to produce the pharmaceuticals that we use, the equipment that we use, the training aids, the blood products, Everything that we do relies on a strong partnership with industry as well as great military medics. So this is really a, a wonderful forum to have that discussion. And anytime there's an opportunity to talk to our defense industrial-based partners, I try to make an effort to be there. So you had the opportunity to speak to the crowd in the plenary session. And what would you say is your take-home message? What do you want the folks who listen to you to go back to their bases, camp stations? What do you want them to remember and maybe apply and, and think about when they get back? Yeah, the number one thing that I think all of us in military medicine need to keep in mind is if you put the patient first, you'll seldom go wrong. We have collected tremendous knowledge about what right looks like for the care of combat casualties, from trauma to mental health to infectious disease, you name it. We know more today than we have ever known before. If we can share that knowledge and ensure that we're focusing on how to use that to take care of the patient in front of us, we typically deliver phenomenal care. Where I'm personally concerned is we get distracted about what patch we wear, what patch they wear, who gets credit, who's running things, who's in charge of things, and we take our eye off the ball on it. So I think the number one message is a real back to basics. Do what it is that attracted you to medicine and do it as well as possible in peacetime. Because the only way that you can do it well, and I can say this with great certainty, for those who have been in combat, that you can't deliver great care in combat unless you are de delivering great care at home. And that means a relentless focus on high quality care every day. What's best for the patient? It's not about high tech tools. Those can help. But it starts with that absolute commitment to the patient. So one of the things that I really enjoy when I listen to you talk, you say this wherever you go is that 
the physiology is not that much different between a Marine and a soldier and an airman. And, and really the mission of the medical departments is not that different. And we're going to fight the wars of the future jointly and as a team. What are the barriers to keep that from happening? So, you know, you've also heard me say I like to read history. And if you go back and you look at the interwar years, every interwar period, there's a natural tendency in bureaucracies to go back to a stovepipe approach because that's how the money gets shared out. That's how resources are divvied up. What some countries have done, in fact, almost every major industrial country except for ours, have consolidated their healthcare teams into a much more joint system, at least the common capabilities. And we're moving in that direction. And I really applaud what the DHA is intended to do to provide that integrated backend support. And at the end of the day, if you're in a submarine, there are some nuances that are different than if you're in a space vessel or if you're a CCAT crew member. But the vast majority of what we do doesn't change based on the patch on your uniform. And we have to build both research, development, and acquisition systems that acknowledge that reality so that what we're giving to our colleagues who are going to be far forward in any of those environments works across platforms as the norm and only by exception is different. Because the reality is patients are different only by exception, not as the norm. So when you're in the office with the chiefs of staff, with the joint chief of staff, and he looks to you and says, we have a medical concern, are we ready for the next battle of the future? What would you say and how would you know if we are ready for that? So the first thing that I'll say is we have great medics and we've shown that repeatedly. If you look at the performance of our medics in deployed environments, it continues to be outstanding. Where I think all of us would acknowledge we have a challenge is how scalable that is. If we transition from the low intensity conflicts of the last 20 years to a large-scale combat operation, can we explode that level of competence and capability and bring it up to what we need for a large-scale combat operation? And there's a lot of parts and pieces that go into that. One of the things I talk about a lot is blood. Every war has revalidated about six months into the war. Blood's important. If you're exsanguinating, the best thing you can do is stop the bleeding and then replace the blood that the patient has lost. Our ability to generate enough blood or blood substitutes is going to be an critically important part of how well prepared we'll be for future conflicts. We can do it very well at the scale that we've required for the last 20 years. Now we have to build out the ability to do that at a much larger scale using both whole blood, blood products, and we hope, thanks to great work that DARPA is doing, some blood substitutes that they're working on. And you can pick almost every aspect of medicine and have that same discussion about, here's what we're doing well today. How do we scale that for a much larger demand in a very short period of time? And it forces you to step back and say, just what I said a few minutes ago, you've got to deliver great care as the norm every day. And if and when we can say we're doing that at every facility every day, then I'll look anybody in the eye and say, I'll take these medics anywhere because they deliver great care every single day. Now, you've been in this seat as the joint surgeon, and you've had some incredible circumstances happen while you were in this job. We've had COVID happen. We've had Russia invade Ukraine. What are some of the lessons learned that you've been able to gather that you don't want us to forget as we 
go through a period where we don't have a pandemic or there's not a large-scale war going on. What are the most vital lessons that you've learned that you want to pass on? I'm going to sound like a broken record, Doug, because the, the first one is what I've said several times already. Put the patient first every time. Any discussion that doesn't start with what's the right thing to do for the patient, I'm marginally interested in because I don't think that their priority, whoever's having that discussion, I don't think their priorities are. Start with what's right for the patient and not just the individual patient, but the aggregate. It's nice. It's convenient. It's easy to say, well, we want to hand wave and talk big philosophical things. I don't. I want to start with what does good patient care look like at the one each's and then how do we scale that? And when we do that, we come up with great solutions. Where we lose our ways, when we start trying to have philosophical discussions about who gets to run what, and should this be a DHA or should that be over there, we lose our way and we, we distract ourselves from the really important discussions that we need to have about are our nurses getting enough opportunities to take care of critically ill patients? Are our respiratory therapists taking care of enough folks on vents? Are our pharmacists doing the sort of work that we'll need them to do in a deployed environment? Those are the one each's that are the biggest lesson learned because when we sent folks out to the civilian hospitals, the feedback overwhelmingly during the COVID pandemic was we sent great medics out there. And by medics, I mean enlisted all the way up to the highly trained physicians who went out there. But that's a small subset of the force. That's the active duty force. We also have to think about the reserve component, everybody else who will deploy in the next large-scale combat operations. That's the first lesson. Put the patients first every time, and you're, you'll seldom go wrong with it. The second lesson is we are woefully falling behind the pace of change in the practice of medicine because it's changing so quickly. And that's not to say that good people aren't doing good things in our system, but we're going to have to change our research development and acquisition system to keep up with the pace of change in the practice of medicine. And to do that, you can't have a 10-year acquisition cycle because if the body of medical knowledge is doubling every two months, uh, you know in 10 years, whatever it is, will be so far out of date, it will be irrelevant. So we have to have a much more agile system for doing rapid spiral developments rather than these exquisite acquisition programs that give you something years down the road that will no longer be relevant, reasonable, or what the medic at the front line needs. And then the third thing that I would say is we have to pay attention to the basic stuff. Great lesson learned from Ukraine, tourniquets matter. And anybody who's been in combat knows that. But how many of our medics are really proficient at using tourniquets, knowing when to put them on, where to put them? And more importantly than the medics knowing that, the rest of the warfighters who are out there, do they really understand how to do that? And after tourniquets, let's talk about blood. How do we make sure as far forward as possible that we've got whole blood available and people who know how to safely administer it, which means everybody has to be accurately typed and you've got to have that information available to know what type of blood to give them. That's the next life-saving intervention. Then we've got to rethink, how are we going to do prolonged field care when we can't move people quickly? And how do we move people if we can't move them by air? Our system for decades now has been designed around a reliance on rotary lift, air movement, HAZAVAC, MEDAVAC, and fixed-wing AIRVAC. We're going to have to redesign that system for the reality of future conflicts. That alone will keep us gainfully employed for years to come. It's all doable, but we've got to commit to getting after it. So you've had an amazing career. In fact, I think we met each other more than 30 years ago as captains. We're both urologists. Looking back, 
Why did you stay in military medicine for so long? So part of it was my family. My dad grew up in the Depression, joined the Navy at the end of World War II, had some remarkable opportunities because of that and instilled in us a deep gratitude for what opportunities he's had in this country and as a result of his Navy service. My mom's story is even more complicated. She was born in Hungary, small country in Eastern Europe. Parents were killed by the Soviet Union and the Gulag at the end of World War II. And she eventually fought in the 56th Revolution, was captured and then escaped and came to this country. And what, what both of them taught us growing up was just how valuable it is to live in a place in which freedom is accepted and is the norm. And they regularly reminded my brother and sister and I that most of us don't have a good yardstick for understanding what a bad day really is. Part of what drew me to the military was we are part of that bulwark that prevents others from having to experience that next worst day in America. And to me, that's been an important and very rewarding part of the career. It's also been incredible to take care of the men and women who volunteer to serve in the military. They're just extraordinary folks. Many of them choose to do this year after year and had great opportunities, whether it's caring for people in combat, working with folks at the South Pole, literally providing medical care there, the Arctic Circle, on ships, any number of places, things that would never have had an opportunity to do outside the military. It's been an extraordinarily rewarding chance to serve truly remarkable Americans and some allies and partners. So if we have some people listening to us who are just starting out their career or even thinking about military medicine, what would you tell them? I envy you. That's what I tell them. I think if you look at what's happening in medicine today, we're on the cusp of revolutionizing the way that medicine is practiced. As we move towards evidence-based medicine and that body of evidence grows, it will become much easier to understand what right looks like. The new technologies will make it easier to do the right thing for the right patient. As we look at all of the patients, not just what works for a small subset, but what works for different ethnic groups and for both genders, what works across the spectrum of that, of that population that makes up the United States of America, I think we're finding tremendous opportunities to improve healthcare. And I envy the folks who will help us figure out how to leverage those opportunities. And I would tell them, just as I've said repeatedly as we've been chatting here today, never forget the most precious privilege we have is caring for that patient in front of you at that moment. It's an incredibly rewarding thing that is different than what almost anybody else gets to do. People trust us with their lives or the lives of their children or their spouse. It is truly a privilege, not always, but usually also a pleasure to be able to do that. We've been speaking with Major General Paul Friedrichs on this combined collaboration with OpMed TV and War Dogs. Paul, thanks for your time. Thanks for your service and best of luck in retirement. Good thanks, to talk Doug. to you. Good to talk to you too. Thank you for listening to War Dogs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Dogs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardox on wardoxpodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.